And inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. Now, here's your host, Joe McClain. Zoom chat all the way from, uh, I was going to say sunny California, but I'm pretty sure it's dark out there right now. Uh, John Sorensen from Catholic Answers, good morning to you. Thanks, brother. How you doing, man? Praise God I'm alive, and that counts. Yeah, amen Amen yeah. to that, dude. Yeah, it is. It's like, it's super early here. The sun's not even out yet. I don't even think the, you know, the vampires are still sleeping, too. Amen. <laughs> well, all the holiest people get up this early, so I'm just saying. Yeah. God is yeah, good. There you go. Uh, real quick, before we jump into the story, uh, midnight mass, uh, early morning mass, what's your preference, good sir? I'm going to do midnight mass. I've been doing that for a long time. Um, I don't, it's kind of confusing right now, though. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get to mass. That's why that news just now about the, uh, the uh, priest from the SSPX who in the state of California sounded so good. It's like, yes, it did. It's kind of limited where you can go to church unless you want to sit outside. And I know it's California and it's kind of, sunny right now but it can get cold you know it can be pretty cold it's a different kind of cold than than some other places it's like this kind of wet mm. cold here you know because we're so close to the ocean yeah for sure so. well i pray that you'll have an opportunity at a midnight mass there uh we're certainly going to midnight mass uh as a family here in uh, in texas and we're very grateful for that opportunity but at any rate let's jump into going why we would go to mass on that day at all to celebrate the birth of Christ. You've got a a, a blog post that actually dates back to 2013 uh, mm-hmm. that we, uh, we would uh, wanted to dive into today. I, I've heard this argument several times, you know, in the, over the last couple of decades, that December 25th is an invented date. It's uh, it's an effort of Christians to subvert a pagan holiday and to uh-huh. steal all of their elements and, and to sort of Christianize it. So, you know, you might think of, uh, if you've ever been to Rome, you see the, uh, the obelisks there in uh, St. Peter's Basilica, and on top of it is a cross. So we've dominated the pagan culture there. That was sort of the message there, which I, I approve of that message, by the way. Um, yeah. But is that the case with December the 25th? Could it at all be possible that December the 25th is the actual birth date of Christ. What say you, so, John Sorensen? I would say that it is possible, um, but ultimately I don't think that that, uh, I don't think that that's necessarily something that we need to prove. It's, it's, it's fine enough to me if that's just the date that we celebrate his birth and Jesus's birth and we don't, we don't know the actual date. There were several dates that were bandied about by the early church. And the, you know, my colleague Jimmy Aiken points out that uh, the, the church never deemed any of the other ones heretical or had any issue with it. It was of, you know, it was debated in the church, but, um, but ultimately uh, December 25th won out. Um, and I think, you know, the church was centered in Rome and there's a tradition going all the way back to the, you know, early uh, or late second century, uh, uh, marking 20 the 25th as the date of the birth of jesus so i mean it's it's a long-standing tradition it goes way back what can we say about the the issue over saturnella or sol invictus did we hijack these events so that's an interesting that's an interesting argument you see it a lot on um i i mean that's something that i believed for years and years and i've even heard uh you know catholic priests talk about that from the pulpit and mm-hmm. saying that you know the christians uh, that Christians Christianized this pagan celebration. But when you go looking at the actual historical record, you, you find no evidence for that. So as I mentioned before, that, that 
the history of the date going of 25th going way back in time, the earliest uh, mention we have of that is Hippolytus of Rome, and he's writing in about 204, and, and uh, he's he's um, he mentions the 25th as uh, the date for the birth of Jesus. Mm. Now the 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 celebration of Sol Invictus was because uh, the Emperor Aurelian instituted these uh, these games and and these other celebrations that lasted about a week, not on December 25th, just before it, it actually ended on the 23rd. Mm-hmm. But he didn't do that until 274, so 70 years after Hippolytus mentions uh, December 25th as the birth date of Christ. Mm-hmm. And also, there is uh, the earliest mention we have of... Uh, it being celebrated on December 25th by the pagans that the Sol Invictus celebration is uh, in the, it's called the chronology of 354. It's a calendar that was written for some rich Roman Christian guy <laughs> and it survives to this day. We have copies of it. You can see it online. I actually linked to it in the, in the article and uh, Sol Invictus is mentioned there as being uh, celebrated on December 25th, but so is Christmas. So there's no evidence at all that the Christians supplanted this holiday to try and attract people to it. In fact, I would argue just the opposite because the pagan religions were dying off and Christianity was rising. So who had more? And also if you look at the writings of the early church and they're just utter disdain for anything pagan, mm. uh, it's hard to believe that they would have used that as a method to attract people. Yeah. And I also think of uh, the, the reign of Julian, the apostate. And when he became emperor, he wanted revenge against the Christians, uh, because it was Christians who helped to murder his family. Uh, mm-hmm. When Constantine legalized uh, Christianity, brought us out of the catacombs, became our greatest patron, um, he was seen as the biggest supporter of, of Christianity, and of course Constantine had uh, Julian's family members killed because they were rivals to the to the power of the seat of power. So when Julian the Poste becomes emperor, he goes 180 degrees in the other direction. I want to say I even heard the story of him having himself baptized in bull's blood just to undo his own Christian baptism. And then he wears a habit like a monk, but uh, restores all the pagan practices. He even sets up uh, like sort of 501c3s, if you, if you will, uh, from, pa- uh, from paganism in order to uh, compete with the charitable works of Christ- of the Christian community. And then, of course, we see this big push for Sol Inv- Invictus during his reign uh, as a almost as a way to subvert Christmas instead of the other way around. So maybe exactly. it could be that this is really a pagan attack on Christmas versus a Christmas attack on, on pagan. Well, would it surprise you all that much? Just look at sort of what's going on right now. I mean, I know all kinds of people who, you know, my background is uh, I was an atheist for many years before coming back to the Catholic faith. And so a lot of my friends uh, that I've had for a long time are, you know, they're atheists. They don't believe in God, but they still celebrate Christmas. Yeah. You know, yeah. And in a way they try to, you know, they want to celebrate Christmas. They want to, you know, give the gifts and do all that, all that stuff associated with it. Minus the whole reason for celebrating it in the first place. You know, they don't want to talk about Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And of course, um, the lights, you know, Santa Claus versus St. Nick, uh, mm-hmm. gift giving, it's all good, but at the same time, it's pushing us in the direction opposite of where we ought to be going. So hold that thought. We're talking with John Sorensen from Catholic Answers about the date of Christmas and its historicity 
and the real story behind uh, that celebration. But I want to transition in this segment with you, John, about sort of the biblical timeline that we see. And one of the things that I've always really, you know, it caught me when I first heard this argument that the Catholic Church supplanted the, the pagan holidays by inventing December the 25th, I always thought, well, do you think Our Lady who gave birth to Christ would not remember the circumstances? I mean, name me one single mom who doesn't remember the day, the hour, what she ate right before. <laughs> I mean, my, yeah. my, I, I struggle. I have six kids and two grandkids, and I, sometimes I struggle to remember their birthdays. Not my wife. My wife can remember the exact minute that they were born. Not to mention that Our Lady had complete control of her faculties and had, exactly. had perfect yes. memory. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, so given that, can, uh, John, do you think you can run us through the biblical timeline that might lead up to December the 25th? Well, I think that the December 25th date, if you're looking at the um, if you're looking at the early church fathers, the you know the the writings of the early Christians, and you uh, and you're trying to understand how they arrive at it, they sort of connect it to the Annunciation mm. in Scripture. And there's a lot of really great articles on there that probably do a better job than mine. Uh, I, I recall uh, Taylor Marshall actually has a pretty good article on it he he defends the idea that december 25th is the day yeah that uh, that jesus is born and you can know that for for certain um i i think his arguments are interesting and i agree with uh with a lot of them um but looking at the early church fathers and their reasoning for picking december 25th was that they they connected sort of the especially if you read Hippolytus of Rome, who we spoke about before, mm-hmm. that early mention of December 25th, he connects uh, creation to the Annunciation. So he's saying that, uh, you know, on on uh, March 25th, the, the, the date of the uh, Annunciation, excuse me, it, uh, that creation happened on March 25th. God an- announces the the coming of the Redeemer, the savior on March 25th. And then nine months later you have December 25th. So if Jesus was conceived on March 25th, you shoot forward nine months. Of course, you know, pregnancy is not always super even <laughs> like that, but, uh, but it makes sense why they would arrive at that. You can see it. It's like, okay, now you fast forward nine months. That's the, you know, it's generally how long it takes. Um, and, uh, and that's how they arrived at December 25th and uh, Pope Benedict uh, reinforces this in his book, the spirit of the liturgy. I actually quote that section in the article on Mm. uh, December 25th on Catholic.com. And I think that's a really good, um, I think that's a really good explanation. His is, his was one of the best. Pope Benedict was awesome. And uh, I think that sounds reasonable to me. And, Mm. and, uh, and I, and I agree with what you guys were saying earlier about uh, the blessed mother having knowledge of when, Jesus would be born. I, I find it hard to believe that she wouldn't have uh, remembered the date of her only right, son. Right, yeah. And could you right. could you even imagine her only son, who's also God? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Can't who, forget God's birthday. Who, an angel announced. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I might have remembered something about that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, good luck with that, right? And you know, yeah. let me just briefly run through Taylor's uh, take on uh, on the biblical timeline. I've linked to, by the way, to John's article as well as Taylor's video on our live video feed over at Facebook.com forward slash 
uh, GRN online. You can find it there. I also recommend you search for uh, Why December 25th on Catholic Answers website. There's like four articles I think that would be very helpful towards the subject as well. Um, but uh, Taylor takes it this way. We know that Zechariah, Luke chapter 1, was serving in the temple of, as a part of the company of Abijah. Now there's 24 companies, which means one company per week, and we know that he was serving in about the, the end of September. Uh, he goes home he after his encounter with the gate with Gabriel and he conceives with his wife and they bear a son named John in about June by the way the church celebrates the birth of John the Baptist in June uh, now, John is six months older than Jesus. How do we know that? Based on when Gabriel uh, had this annunciation moment with Our Lady in Luke's Gospel, we know that her cousin Elizabeth was six months old. Six months plus June, you get to the end of December. And there we go. And we're already at December the 25th. And again, if Luke actually consulted Our Lady for any of this or consulted John the Apostle uh, who Our Lady lived with John the Apostle post the crucifix, right? So if he consulted any of these uh, eyewitness uh, testimonies, then he would have had these details that he could have easily referenced in the composition of his gospel. What's right. it, any I think comment it's a powerful there? argument. That's a, that's a very powerful argument. I, I, I appreciate what he, what he says there. there was, uh, um, there's another interesting um, point that uh, that was made by a 19th century liturgical scholar named Louis Duquesne, mm. and I've seen this uh, pop up here and there, is this idea that, um, uh, that prophets uh, died on the same day they were uh, conceived. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, uh, yeah, uh, me and a bunch of my colleagues have tried tracking down information to figure out where it is that he got this from, <laughs> and uh, we haven't been successful at that yet. doesn't mean it's not out there. We just haven't, haven't found it yet. Um, but, uh, but I think that's a, that's an interesting argument too. And, uh, I, you know, it's for me, ultimately, uh, if, if I like to think December 25th is, is the day that Jesus was born on, but if, you know, something popped up and said, oh, that, you know, he was born some other day, mm. um, that wouldn't, that wouldn't really shake my faith either. I, I love the argument that, uh, oh no, it couldn't have been in December because, uh, it was too cold outside, but you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so I live in Southern California. It's <laughs> yeah. the, the, the weather here is it, it's, it's cold. It's, it's like Israel. Yeah. yeah. But it's not, you know, and it gets cold at night, but it's not like you're going to die if you stand out there, you know, oh, in the middle funny. of the night. Yeah, because there's no way that the shepherds did their job during the winter, right? Right. right. Not even yeah. when it's cold out, they hold on till spring. Well, you know, yeah. fu- funny story there. Uh, back in 2005, uh, by, uh, by the sheer grace of God and a miracle, I was able to take my wife, and at the time we only had two children, uh, to Rome in December. And we were, we were living in New England, so it was like 30 below, 4 feet of snow, and we were in... Hope. The Catholic Encyclopedia has much to say about hope. Going online to newadvent.org, we see hope explained as the desire and expectation of future good. Each of us prays and looks to the situations and events of our lives with a desire and expectation that something good awaits us. We pray for the ultimate good a close and intimate relationship with God. During Advent, we also look to the prophecy candle of hope. The prophet Isaiah foretold of the coming of Jesus. As Christians, we must stay firm in our expectation of goodness, for our salvation lies in seeing goodness in people and focusing on our relationship with God. 
Jesus said that the kingdom of God is now. Like a guiding star in the night, hope is born as we turn our desires and expectations to God. This has been a bit of Catholic encouragement from Michael Gisandi. I turned from a recreational drug user to a drug addict. That took me to my knees. I lost a family, almost two families. I lost friends. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. I love it. My heart's there. I took communion after 18 years, and I, the rest of the Mass I sat and cried. God restored my life. God restored my family. God restored my love. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. We were living in New England, so it was like 30 below, 4 feet of snow. And we were in Rome in December, and it was like 50 degrees, blue sky, sunshine. I was in a t-shirt, and the Italians were yelling, cursing at us for not covering up our baby girl. Because they thought it was, uh, we thought we were being uh, uh, inhuman or, you know, they were being uh, abusive to our child. <laughs> they were in fur coats and gloves. And I'm like, this is not cold, people. <laughs> I mean, you want cold? <laughs> Come with me. I'll show you cold. But, yeah. uh, you know, and I, last time I checked, Bethlehem is pretty much not on the same level as the Antarctic. I'm pretty sure no. that it's a, a fairly warm climate in general, uh, 24-7 yeah. Uh, 365, at any rate. Uh, yeah. We're going to run out of time here in about, uh, I guess we have, what, four minutes left to go? Two, uh, two minutes left to go. Real quick, uh, two minutes on the clock, John. What brought you into the church? What was the spark that led you out of atheism? you got two minutes. Uh, all right. That's, uh, that's a difficult one to do in two minutes. But uh, it was a long process. My, um, uh, my wife introduced me, actually, to uh, Catholic Answers website, and I started reading a lot of the the uh, content there. Um, so I would say it was a combination of that and just going to uh, her church with her and seeing, uh, you know, good Catholics who actually walk the walk. Um, it wasn't something that they just did on Sundays, which is a common trope with a lot of atheists. So, you know, they're, they're, you go to confession and you're all good. And, uh, you know, you can go on being a jerk the rest of the week or whatever. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't find that to be the case at all. So, uh, you know, and eventually, um, I became convinced by a, a lot of the, um, apologetics that I was reading. So I'm a huge fan of apologetics. That's, I've been with Catholic Answers 13 years, actually next month. Amazing. And uh, enjoyed every minute of it. Were you raised Christian or atheist? Uh, a little bit of Catholic uh, upbringing when I was real young, but my parents uh, left the faith. My grandfather was actually a, a doctor at a Catholic mission in Malawi, Africa. Really? So, uh, so, you know, yeah, one of my aunts was born there. And, wow. But, uh, they, you know, they had wandered from the faith by the time I was a you know, teenager. Amazing. Well, praise be to Jesus. Welcome home. And uh, congratulations. Amen. 13 years uh, at Catholic Answers. What a wonderful apostolate. Thank you for all you do. Thanks a lot, brother. I really love your show, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, God bless you, John. We'd love to have you back sometime. Fun conversation, John. God love you, God bless you, and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you. Likewise. Take care, brother. All right. Uh, again, I've linked to John's article. I really recommend you check that out over at uh, facebook.com forward slash GRN online. And... Uh, Check that out. It's a really good article. And be prepared for that conversation that could happen around a Christmas dinner table with friends or family. You know, oh, you Catholics, you you hijacked a pagan holiday. No, no, that's not the case. In fact, evidence shows it could be the other way around. So read that article and share that with friends or family. May God richly bless you. God love you. And Merry Christmas. On the line with us right now is Mother Miriam of the Lamb of God. Mother of Israel's hope. Good morning to you, Mother. 
Good morning, Joe. How are you? Praise be to God. I am alive, and that counts. How are you? Uh, uh, ditto. That <laughs> counts a lot. I've asked God to let me live to 500. Praise be to God. As long as there is soul left on the earth, because uh, then we have eternity forever. Amen. So, well said. Uh, I'm alive and well so far, doing good. Now, it's voting season, obviously. It's, uh, this morning, you you wouldn't even know that there were other news out there besides election results, because that's all every <laughs> single outlet is reporting on. And we just covered it as well. But I saw a tweet this morning, and uh, I thought this summarized things well. It says, evidently, in some parts of the country, from crime to inflation, the situation may have to get far worse before people get motivated to change course. It's alarming that we apparently haven't hit the bottom yet, close quote. Now, what I find fascinating about this particular quote is, I think too many Catholics uh, believe that we can vote. We can uh, simply have a political solution to the world's problems. And we tend to live our political uh, ideas more with greater fidelity than we do live our actual faith. What say you, Mother Miriam? I say that what you've just said is, I think, right on, spot on, and it's utterly, utterly tragic. Um, I don't know how much more bottom, Joe, our Lord will allow us to hit. Um, I think uh, the way things are, our country is all but gone. It, it's shocking, but um, evil has blanketed the world. Catholics have you know, like frogs in warm water, uh, gotten used to it. And um, I, I don't know what will wake us from our super, Joe, but I personally believe that the shape the country's in is due to Catholics, those who call themselves Catholics and don't live it and don't even know what it is to live it because they are in the world and of it. They may not think that, because they may go to church on Sunday, but they are in the world and of it. And um, last night, I was up uh, past midnight uh, following what I could, but um, it, it, it's sickening, actually. I don't find it shocking, Joe. Um, it, the evening began with quite a bit of hope with Republicans uh, looking like they have a gain, but um, it quickly went south. And um, I said earlier, I, I was on the air a bit, I'm not a prophetess, but I don't uh, imagine that evil will allow good to have its way. It has had too much success with us, with those who call themselves Catholics, so why do I pick on Catholics? Because I am one, and I'm utterly embarrassed um, because of the faith face of Catholicism in the world, who is supposed to be in it and not of it. And uh, we, you cannot tell us apart from anyone else. You know, mother. Abortion, divorce, everything. You know, mother. I was just thinking about the fact that I have some friends who are, you know, they they were raised good Catholics. They. Uh, were given the teaching of the church, and then when they got older, they kind of fell off the wagon, 
they uh, started getting into bad things, and they, no matter what, any uh, they would get meetings with the priest. Mom and dad would drag them over there here and send them to these groups, and they just kept on getting worse. And a lot of times, these people will never get better until they absolutely hit rock bottom, and then finally they realize. Maybe my parents are right. Maybe my pastor was right. Maybe I do need God in my life, and they come back. And I kind of see that as analogy for our country.、Uh, what do you think about that, Mother Miriam? I think a hundred percent what you're saying is right on. And blessed be God for His grace in allowing us to hit the rock bottom. I, I personally don't see that for our country. I think we've gone past the turn. I really do.、Um, It, it's one thing for the heart of an individual、uh, to hit rock bottom and look up,、uh, but our country、uh, has become so.、Uh, the government that's supposed to serve the people,、um, this totalitarianism that we're heading into, communism that we're already in、um, control. I I don't think it's. I personally. Not because I don't have hope. God is the God of the the earth, the heaven and earth.、Uh, there's nothing He can't do. I personally think this country is is beyond hope,、uh, other than God's miracle. I I think it's that. I think it's truly that bad. When I said frog in warm water, you know the analogy. You know, you put a frog in a little pot, you put the pot on the stove, and he's really happy. It's it's body temperature, it's room temperature, and you turn the heat up. Just a simmer. He doesn't even know you've got the light on,、hmm. and it, it it heats up so gradually. He just his body keeps adjusting until he boils to death.、Um, I, I think we're boiling to death. I I do not, I want to have hope. I have hope in God.、Uh, all things, blessed be His name, and for individual salvation. But I have no such hope for our country. You know. Uh, on the left, liberals tend to embrace、uh, the culture of death and the culture of perversity. On the right, so-called conservatives、uh, may be more pro-life, but they almost rarely conserve traditional marriage between a man and a woman, which is the bedrock of of society itself. So, what are they actually conserving? And too often, they spend just like liberals do. So,、uh, as a Catholic,、okay. I tend to find not much of a home in either camp. Uh, and society, my our neighbors themselves tend to embrace、uh, the LGBTQ agenda. They tend to embrace abortion rights. They tend to embrace all kinds of things that we would find morally troubling, let alone reprehensible. And、uh, and it just seems like every time there's an election, we're told it's the most important election of your whole life, and and it may be. But no amount of voting ever seems to change a whole lot. Things continue to get worse. Why is the church not getting off the stump? Why are we not evangelizing and trying to convert every single soul, irregardless of who's in office? Well, Joe, that's the question, isn't it?、Um, uh, Lord said, "Why, why are you still sleeping?、Uh, could you not watch with me one hour? We suffered three hours, and God asked of them, in the words of Bishop Athanasius Snyder, the minimum, just one hour."、Um, I think. I think we're blind.、Um, uh, the angel of light, I believe, has blinded us because we're not killing anybody. We're not personally, perhaps, performing an abortion. We're not the abortionists.、Uh, we may picket 
abortion clinics. We go to church on Sunday. We don't do any, we don't steal. And so we're Catholic, but that's not true. Uh, it, it's, it's not true at all. I had an email just yesterday from a woman who wrote to me. Mother, I'm going to put a, she, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought. We'll pick up right here or right on the other side of this very quick break. You were saying you received an email from a friend is where you left off. Can you pick up there? Well, yes. And actually a woman that I, that I don't know, but um, she wrote because uh, last Sunday, um, apparently she has three children uh, grown uh, at home. And uh, her husband is a um, lax Catholic, mm. not lapsed, but last sometimes he goes to church. And she has a 15-year-old son at home, and she was away on Sunday. And when she came home, she asked her 15-year-old if he went to church. And he said, well, no. She said, well, why didn't you ask Dad to drive you? He said, well, I, didn't, I forgot about it. And she, she wanted to know... Uh, what she should do with her son, um, if she should discipline him, what should happen. And I said to her, I don't know about your son. If he forgets it's Sunday, uh, the faith is probably not his personally. Um, and I said, my, my big concern is why you are not home on a Sunday. And she wrote back and she said, well, one uh, child was running a marathon and the other was it a sports game? So they had to split up to attend their children's games. I simply wrote her back and I said, that's not God's design for a Sunday or for the family. If you don't make Sunday the priority, your children should not even be playing sports games on Sunday. Again, that's being in the world and of it. And you should, you want your husband and your 15 year old to go to mass. You need to be home with them. You need to be home as a family. She would never, I haven't heard back from her, she would never consider that that's not living as a Catholic. Yeah. Because she didn't kill anybody. Um, she might have even gone to work where she traveled, uh, to pass where she traveled. If we lived our faith, Joe, I believe... This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Christmas Minute. Since we are all children... We all associate Christmas with Christmas presents. G.K. Chesterton says that everything looks better when it's a gift. A gift is something we don't deserve. If we deserved it, it would not be a gift. And that's why the only possible response to a gift is gratitude. And that is why we hear in the Mass, as we will hear at Christ's Mass, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks. Everything we have is a gift. And that is why Chesterton says, thanks is the highest form of thought. That's why the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. The best kind of giving, says Chesterton, is thanksgiving. Want more than a minute? Visit us at chesterton.org. Hi, I'm Debbie Giorgiani. And I'm Adam Bly. We're the hosts of The Spirit World every Saturday morning on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Join us as we help answer your questions on angels, demons, and how the physical and spiritual worlds interact. That's The Spirit World from the Station of the Cross studios every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, right here on the Guadalupe Radio Network.
different than the world. We are worse than the world. We have more grace than anyone on the face of this earth, and we live like the world. If we lived our faith, if we lived as if it were true, the stores would be closed on Sunday because we wouldn't be in them. The restaurants would be closed because we wouldn't take our families to them after mass and demand that others who should be keeping Sunday as a day of worship serve us. The world would be different if we were living our faith. We have a grace that no one has. We have an accountability that is greater than anyone else on earth to whom much is given, much is required. And I believe, again, I don't discount the devil and his ways, but we are not living as Catholics in the world. I don't think you could spot a Catholic on the street. They dress the same uh, in clothing that used to be in my underwear, uh, immodest, um, the speech. It, you can't tell Catholics apart, and it's it's utterly, utterly That's tragic. so true, Mother Miriam. We I, are responsible. I was just at the University of Houston campus yesterday afternoon, and uh, there was a many, I was pamphleting uh, against uh, 10 reasons why transgender ideology is harmful to the family. And a lot of these people who are coming by were wearing rosaries, miraculous medals. They were dressed incredibly inappropriately. And when it handed them the, the uh, flyer, they would just uh, scoff at me in disgust. And, uh, and they would say things like, I'm not even going to waste my time with you, or you're disgusting, or they would curse at me. Meanwhile, they're wearing rosaries, they're wearing miraculous medals, and uh, claim to be Catholic, claim to be representatives of the church. And that just, when everything you're saying there just spoke very true to, to my experience as well. People, um, it's just, it's very sad. Do you see any way of this turning around, Mother? Or what can we do as individuals uh, to, to turn these things around? I guess, first and foremost, change our own lives. But uh, what would say you, Mother Miriam? I think if the devil were here in person, he'd be wearing a rosary and a miraculous medal. Uh, that's his plan. I, I think it's simply, I don't think there's another plan. I think it's what you said. We need to live as Catholics ourselves. Our speech, our dress, our voting, uh, our actions, what we do, what we don't do. Um, if we don't live as Catholics, I, I don't think we have any other power to change the world than to live individually as Catholics, uh, by the grace of God, and give in to absolutely nothing. And don't worry about people liking you. If they're homosexual, we need to say, you may not believe the scriptures, but no homosexual, uh, no slanderer, no gossiper will enter heaven. Those are God's words. They're not your opinion, not your belief. It's your belief because you believe God. That's what God says. And it's, of course, it's Please, God, up to the Holy Spirit to convict him. But I don't think there's anything more powerful mm. we could do. It's not small. But, but I, live our lives to be holy, set apart in the midst of a perverse generation. But I go back to the question I asked before the break, and that is, you know, where the, where is the church? I was on vacation having a conversation with an old friend of mine that I hadn't seen in many years. And we were talking politics and you know, and I was sort of depressing him. I'm like, listen, the state of affairs is not great. And I don't have a lot of hope for this red wave that was supposed to come midterms. And this was a, a week and a half ago when I had this conversation. And he's like, well, college you is, then there's no hope. And I'm like, well, at the end of the day, there's no political solution. If 
if and when the bishops of the world decide to convert every single soul, to go after every soul for their own salvation and for the glory of God, then the world will absolutely change. But I go back, it seems like today we live in a time and an age where we want dialogue with a lot of sinners, praise be to God, but that dialogue doesn't translate into conversion. That dialogue doesn't translate into bringing these sinners to where they've got to go, which is to live holy lives, to, to, uh, to reconcile with God, to, uh, to make uh, penance for all of the grave sins that we have committed that so gravely offend God, mm-hmm. as Our Lady said uh, to the Fatima children. Um, I, I, can't, I just go back to this one fundamental question, Mother. When are, we gonna, when, are we, when are we going to see this fundamental change in the hierarchy of the church? Oh, Joe, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I wish I even had hope for that. But a man by the name of Edmund Burke years back said, the only thing needed for evil to uh, win is for good men to remain silent. Mm. Why our bishops have given in one after another all over the world to such awful evil as LBGTQ and same-sex so-called marriage, uh, gender ideology, blessing of homosexual couples, all of this, I believe, has one goal, one aim, and it's Our Lady's words that um, the final battle will be for marriage and the family. Um, Their silence is death. Their silence is death. Why are they afraid? Why do they want people to like them? Why are they afraid of being come against? I don't know. I don't know if they've lost the faith. Uh, I don't know if they ever have it. Uh, it's it's rampant. But uh, Joe, it's it, we don't have shepherds. We have very, very, very few, and the sheep have to stand up and learn their faith or perish. You know, mother we must must do it. You know, mother. I'm when you're saying this, I'm I'm thinking of the the fiery prayer by Saint Louis de Mumford. I I love this prayer, and this this gives me hope because. The fiery prayer uh, written by St. Louis de Mumford and a, a prophecy for the latter times is, is so beautiful because it talks about in the times when things are absolutely the worst and the worst situation we're in, God is going to raise up men of thy right hand, as uh, he says in the prayer, that are detached from all earthly things, that are going to go into combat with the devil, formed by the Holy Spirit in Mary, speaking about the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, speaking of devotion to our Lady Fatima, who has complete trust in divine providence, and they're going to extinguish the fire that is in the house of God. And that that gives me great hope, and I, and I like to pray this prayer often. It's, it's a very long prayer, so uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful prayer, and I can't recommend this enough for people to pray this and pray that God, that God makes you, as an individual, the apostle of the latter times, one of these soldiers of Our Lady that will fight for Christendom. Uh, Mother, do you think that uh, when when all these things are getting worse, that God will call men that are like the apostles, that are like uh, his mother, that to, to be apostles for these times? Yes, apostles of the last day. I absolutely believe it. God has done that through history with great, great men and women, with great saints. I absolutely believe he will do that, and I think he is doing that. We're down to about... Men and women who are not afraid. Amen Go to ahead, that. Joe. We're down to about a minute and a half left with Mother Miriam of the Lamb of God. And, uh, boy, 
I think a lot of people are going to feel very depressed uh, this morning or in just in general, not necessarily about politics, but about the state of affairs and the state of of what they think is to come still. And at the end of the day, uh, I, I think we are responsible for effort and attitude, and we leave success up to God. And our role is to live in a state of grace, no matter what comes out of the Vatican, the White House, or in between. I'm going to give you the last words here, Mother Miriam. What would be your encouragement to our listeners? It's our Lord's church. He is building it. Uh, he will lead it into all truth till the end of time, and the gates of hell will not prevail. If you're Catholic, you're truly in the church. We win. We win. Our Lady's Immaculate Heart will triumph. We're going to go through this time, and I think it's a time of purification to bring us to our senses. But there's tremendous hope. Uh, there's heaven ahead for those who are faithful. It's never too late to turn around. It's never too late to love God, to follow him. But we are on the winning side. If we don't turn from God, there is tremendous hope. The church will last. And again, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we have people like Joe McLean <laughs> in Guadalupe Radio. Our Lady Guadalupe is the lady of our community, Joe. Praise be to God. And, um, and she will win. Amen to Her that. Immaculate Heart will triumph. Praise be to Jesus. Now, what time of the day is your show, Mother Miriam? Uh, between 9 and 10, also Central Time. Central Time. You can hear it uh, online. It's on uh, Frontline on YouTube. It's also on the Station of the Cross and much, much more. You can go to our website, motherofisraelshope.org. That's motherofisraelshope.org is the website. Mother Miriam, God bless you. God love you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Joe. God bless you. Have a great day, Mother. That is going to do it for hour number one of Catholic Drive Time. Uh, really enjoyed our conversations with Mother Miriam and, of course, Joshua Mercer from CatholicVote.org. If you can join us in the next hour, David L. Gray is going to be our guest at the top of the next hour. We're going to catch up on all of the abortion referendum. Plus, we'll play our game show, Fear and Trembling, and the after show to conversate directly with you. Go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT to hang out with us live. God bless you. God love you. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. going to jump into a conversation now with Father Ezra Sullivan. Uh, he is with the Order of Preachers, a Dominican out of the province of St. Joseph, about yoga, something we all are familiar with, because I'm sure we know someone, if not if not you, dear listener, somebody you know, I'm sure, has been practicing yoga, over 20 million yoga practitioners uh, in, in growing, I imagine. But I have personally encountered many Catholics who who are into yoga, and we thought we'd have a conversation around that, because Father Ezra has a whole series of articles on this subject over at spiritualdirection.com, and he joins us now by Zoom. Good morning to you, Father Ezra. Good morning. How are you? Praise be to God. I am alive, and that counts. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. I'm, I'm here in Rome. It's a sunny day, and uh, just doing well. Wonderful. Praise be to Jesus. Uh, you're a moral theologian, uh, by way of uh, disclaimer there. So I think this is one of those hot-button issues. In fact, I mean, I've gotten away with a lot of crazy topics uh, on the program, but this may be the... Hey, Donnie, when we see Christ on the cross, what do we call that? A crucifix. And who said, preach Christ and Him crucified? Say 
St. Paul. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Your only daughter met a fine young man who was a committed Mormon. She now wants to join his church. What's your answer? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, a reason for no. Doctrinal positions such as the deity of Jesus and the Trinity. Your reason for yes. You deem seemingly moral character as superseding biblical truth. Secondly, orthodoxy. Your answer is probably no. But how and why? Your resistance to Mormon doctrine does not just come straight down from the Bible. It comes from the first five centuries of brilliant theologians, bishops, and popes. These Catholics wrote, debated, and fought for truth. Example, in 250 AD, 311, and 417, three different popes excommunicated three different heretics, Sibelius, Arius, and Pelagius. They denied the Trinity, the eternal deity of Jesus, or taught that human effort warranted salvation. Would your pastor excommunicate a heretic? Well, unfortunately, your pastor can only remove someone from his local congregation. But that's okay. That guy will probably end up being welcomed to the church down the street. theologian uh, by way of uh, disclaimer there so I think this isn't one of those hot button issues in fact I mean I've gotten away with a lot of crazy topics uh, on the program but this may be the most controversial topic we will ever talk about uh, yoga because so many Catholics uh, are participating in yoga and you hear it from from talking heads subject matter experts they'll say oh it's no big deal it's breathing it's it's uh, stretching I don't know why you're so bent out of shape so we hear that a lot but what is the real deal with yoga? Maybe you can start by defining it, Father Ezra. Yeah, so um, yoga is difficult to define because it, it exists in a lot of different forms. And um, I would say overall, we, it, it is a comprehensive system of human culture, which includes physical, moral, and psychological elements. It acts as a doorway to this gently sloping path toward yoga proper, which is actually a spiritual exercise to unite yourself with the entire universe. You know, Father, my roommate, I live with a couple guys, uh, friends of mine, and one of my roommates is a convert from Hinduism. He uh, mm. recently, about two years ago, and, you know, there's the problem with uh, that a lot of people have with it. They say, okay, well, you know, I can have a Christian yoga. I can uh, make it Catholic, have Catholic meditations instead of these other meditations, and I can have this kind of syncretism. But the problem is, and I've noticed this talking to my friends who, my friend who is Hindu, and, or was Hindu and he was telling me he's like yeah I mean my mom she's totally she was like why do you have to become Catholic why can't you just add Jesus to your to to one of the gods that we pray to uh, that's fine you could do that no big deal and uh, there's a failure of understanding of what the connection between the Hindu faith and why it's incompatible with the Christian faith could you comment on that Yes, absolutely. When I was in India, I saw exactly what you're describing. Namely, I, I visited people's houses and they would have on their walls a picture of Ganesh, which is the elephant-headed god uh, in Hinduism. And then they would have a picture of, say, the Sacred Heart. And for them, Jesus was another incarnation of the general divine. And so they could have multiple gods and, oh, well, Jesus is the one who helps me with some things. Ganesh helps me with other things. And and um, 
in many yoga studios, even in the United States, there will be Sanskrit chants where people will call upon those gods in order to receive their power and their help. It's astonishing. Um, sometimes you'll see a, a statue of Buddha or of Shiva, and it shows the religious origins of yoga. And so just as we can't have Catholic Hinduism, so we can't have Catholic yoga. Just not possible. That's interesting because I was thinking about the fact that uh, when you mentioned the, the point about Sanskrit, my friend, when he converted to Catholicism, uh, but he was a brand new Catholic and he still had a little bit of lingerings of the uh, of his Hindu beliefs. He would he showed up one day and he was like, "Oh yeah, I was studying Sanskrit with my with my uncle and he was uh, and we start off by praying to Sanskrit and I and he had this idea that the the gods or these like these uh, concepts in Hinduism are like are are neutral, but he what if it was failed to be uh, brought to his attention when he was converting is Saint Paul's admonition that all the gods of the pagans are demons, and so even these like minor things that seem to be kind of like they're not actually a god, you know, we're just we're just like praying to an a idea or a concept, and that concept and idea ultimately brings us to the uh, to the divine to God uh, Himself. Uh, what about those kind of situations? Well, again, you know, the, it, when I was in uh, India, one of the things that was brought home to me is that some people had a notion like the gods really existed, that they could have power and you could call upon them for specific things. They would even pray to um, material elements like the Ganges River. But then another guru, he pointed out to me, he said, well, it's really the simple people who believe in those gods. He says the more sophisticated gurus, which I guess he included himself, he said, well, we believe that all the gods are just illusions. They're ultimately um, just avatars of this greater divinity that exists everywhere. In, in either case, Catholics cannot call upon these gods, whether, whether you know, we believe that they're demons or whether we believe they're just illusions or metaphors for some other kind of Hinduistic understanding of divinity. Um, as you say, uh, St. Paul pointed out that all the gods of the pagans are demons. That was the understanding of Zeus and of you know, Aphrodite and Mars and all the Greek gods. And Catholics very early on were martyred for not praying to those gods, for not calling upon them. So the witness of the early church, I think, is really one of the best examples for us to approach yoga now is to say that just as the early Christians could never have had any kind of syncretistic union with Greek or pagan ideas, neither can Christians nowadays with any Hinduistic ideas of the gods. We have just about a couple of minutes left uh, before we have to go to a quick break. We're talking with Father Ezra Sullivan, OP, about the dangers of yoga from a Catholic perspective. What, uh, Father, let me play a devil's advocate for just one sec real quick. Uh, call it you is, Father. My yoga studio doesn't have a Buddhist statue, no Sanskrit chanting going down. It's just breathing and stretching. What would you say to that? I would say what they're doing might not even be yoga at all. Um, one of the very interesting things I've discovered in doing uh, research on the history of some yoga postures is that uh, some of them actually were derived from Swedish body, body lifting culture in the 19th century. And what happened is there were actually men from India who went to England who discovered you know, gymnastics and uh, stretching and so on. They brought it back to India. This is the early 1900s, uh, late 1800s. And then they, they incorporated that into yoga. 
And so, so it's very complicated actually to say, oh, well, one posture is yoga and one posture is not yoga. But I think it, it's, it's easier just to say, avoid yoga in general under whatever name it is. Because what happens is almost always people get involved in yoga for physical reasons and they end up staying in it for spiritual reasons. Even if there's not a Sanskrit chant or a God that they're praying to per se, people get sucked into it because it has this syncretistic um, tendency in general. We had a, one of our CDT insiders, uh, Christopher Chance was asking, uh, Father mentioned different types of yoga. Could he elaborate on that? And let me just uh, sort of throw in with that question with Christopher there, the different types of yoga. Going to something uh, you were addressing at the uh, right before we went to, and that keeps coming back to mind. A lot of Catholics who who say that they are participating really try to you know make the argument that this is harmless. There's nothing going on. So in the different types of yoga that you might address here, I wonder is there is there a version that is truly harmless? But you know. At, absolutely harmless from a Catholic perspective, or is the answer to that no, and we'll have to have concern for all types of Father Ezra Sullivan? So if it's yoga, it's not compatible with Christianity. That, that, that's just the fundamental premise we have to start with. And therefore, any kind of yoga is spiritually dangerous to Christians. Now, some stretching and breathing isn't yoga. And that's where it becomes a little bit difficult, where um, if you look at some yoga practitioners, they will do stretching that you find in gymnastics, or they'll actually use other kinds of exercises, say found in Pilates, or things that people have, you know, just sitting cross-legged. Well, sitting cross-legged isn't particular to yoga, and people do that in cultures all around the world. So we, we have to be really clear, though, that when I say all yoga is dangerous for Christians, what I mean is it's a system. And when people accept this practice as a system, then they may start out with simple bodily postures, but pretty soon they may start eating in a different way. They may start practicing um, morals in a certain way, and their own spirituality starts to slowly change. So that's why I would say it's not dangerous to do some kinds of breathing. It's not dangerous to do some kinds of stretching. You know, breathing and stretching are things that are natural to human beings, but yoga as a system is always dangerous. Now, Father, aside from breaking, potentially breaking, well, actually you would break the first commandment in this situation, which is worse, is it's bad enough. Um, what would you say to a Catholic who who is not convinced about so the spiritual I, dangers? One of the one of the dangers of the yoga philosophy in general is it starts to believe that the individual is divine. And what happens then is instead of worshiping God, who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, separate from us, who created us, instead, people who practice yoga start to believe that they themselves are equivalent to the divine. And so it actually becomes a kind of a narcissistic self-worship, which is, you know, something that modern people are quite amenable to, unfortunately. I I don't know, Father. Uh, I do uh, I do curls with a fork uh, many times a day, so I'm trying to keep this body looking as good as possible. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't need to go to yoga to do that. But at any rate, uh, I joke. Um, what about the 
What about the dangers of the body? Like, I want you to elaborate on that, what you were just saying, because I've heard you talk about this before. The dangers on the person who practices yoga, what are, what's the spectrum here? I mean, I've heard that exorcists have talked about this, so that's sort of on the extreme level, but what about the other opposite end of that spectrum? What are the sort of the the easier or the, the lighter stuff? Maybe you could speak to that. Yes, yes. So certainly I have talked with exorcists who um, they've known uh, women who were uh, possessed by demons because of calling upon them in Sanskrit prayers in the context of yoga. Absolutely true. Um, That does not happen for the most part for most yoga practitioners. You really have to be deeply, typically into what is called kundalini yoga. But even on, on, um, say, a less dangerous but but still dangerous level is what I was describing as this kind of theological narcissism whereby people start to worship their body they want themselves to look as beautiful as possible and then it leads to this kind of vanity where everything becomes focused in their life around a certain kind of look around um, wanting people to acknowledge somehow that they are superior in some way and and of course this is this is related to a very specific culture um, in the United States it's mostly upper class um, or upper middle class women who have a lot of free time who are able to uh, practice this yoga whereas people who are busily working and they're, they're involved in lots of other activities you're naturally less narcissistic because you're able to focus on the good of other people so i'm not saying that all yoga practitioners are egoistic or narcissistic but it can tend to lead to that direction when people start to think oh i am a goddess mm-hmm. and people will say that in some kind of literal sense it's it's, it's astonishing mm-hmm. you know father i was thinking when you said that i was thinking immediately of your article i think it was the number uh, your our second article you say um, i have the quote here and i want to get your comment on it you said ellen is a medical student and thinks of herself as a rational person who doesn't go in for mystical experiences but one day as she closed her eyes and relaxed in savasana Ellen felt a powerful maternal energy around her and saw the Hindu goddess Durga, whose picture graced the yoga studio's back wall. For a moment, the many-armed goddess face lingered in front of her, looking alive and full of compassionate love. Then the image disappeared, though through though the sweet, strong energy stayed with Ellen for hours. Uh, what exactly are you talking about here, and what is this? What is this going on? Well, in this case, this this was a demonic manifestation that um, this this maternal goddess supposedly um, that exists within Hinduistic mythology can manifest itself in different forms. And Durga is one of them. Shakti is another one. And in this case, she because of her deep level of meditation. Planning on shopping online this year for Christmas. Did you know that you can help the Guadalupe Radio Network when you do your Christmas shopping online? All you need to do is shop on Amazon Smile and 0.5% of your purchase goes to the GRN. Just go to AmazonSmile.com and select La Promesa Foundation as your nonprofit of choice. La Promesa is the parent company of Guadalupe Radio. It's that simple to give some extra help to the Guadalupe Radio Network during the holiday season. I had a personal experience that was life-changing for me. My husband of 21 years decided to leave um, our family, me and my girls, and um, in the midst of the absolute horrible heartache, I happened to be flipping through the radio one day on the AM channel because I didn't feel like listening to music, and I happened to find Catholic Radio. 
And ever since then, I have been tuned in religiously. And I feel like I have a really, really strong pull to the Catholic faith. The Guadalupe Radio Network would like to thank those listeners who have supported Catholic Radio financially over the years so that we could be there when Terry needed us. If you would like to support your Catholic Radio station, please visit grnonline.com and you can click on the Donate Now button. Again, we sincerely thank you for helping us to be there for Terry and everyone else that needs God's love. Each of us will be asked to review the movie of our life and give an account to God. We will sorrowfully relive the bad times and joyfully revisit the good. Thankfully, no matter what you've done, there is hope. Since Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save it. So if you've been away from church for a while, we invite you to come home and find the peace that only comes from God. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org. Are you on the CDT Insider email list? Hi, Joe McLean here. And every week I send you cool stuff straight to your inbox, goodies that you're not going to want to miss. Go to grnonline.com forward slash CDT. Hi, I'm Blake Pellerin from Arrows Rugby, Houston's only Catholic rugby club, and St. Rose of Lima Catholic Community. You're listening to AM 1430 KSHJ Houston, part of the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. It's lingered in front of her, looking alive and full of compassionate love. Then the image disappeared, though through, though the sweet, strong energy stayed with Ellen for hours. Uh, what exactly are you talking about here, and what is this? What is this going on? Well, in this case, this this was a demonic manifestation that um, this this maternal goddess supposedly um, that exists within Hinduistic mythology can manifest itself in different forms. And Durga is one of them. Shakti is another one. And um, Ellen, in this case, she because of her deep level of meditation and her approach to some of these prayers, she actually started to witness the demon manifest itself to her as a kind of maternal force. Um, and, and, and this is where it becomes extremely dangerous, where if a person isn't spiritually sophisticated and knows to reject that spiritual force immediately, it can creep into their life and they can actually start to try to draw energy from it. Wow. And you'll see this in um, one of the, one of the publications that's um, most widely read is called Yoga Journal, and they will actually encourage people to call upon the goddess within mm. in order to practice yoga more effectively. And this is what we're talking about, is this um, this demonic force first manifesting itself as maternal, but eventually it starts to take over a person's life, and it undermines their own God-given femininity. You know, that makes me think of the fact that, you know, it's very apropos that you as a Dominican are attacking this uh, error because you're talking about the the fact that it's a contrary to the body. Even like the inoculous versions of uh, yoga are an attack against the body and the soul composite, which, you know, the Dominicans fighting against the Albigensian heresy. Could you talk about how those relates and maybe how the rosary and Catholic spirituality can actually be a proper uh, way to try to get what some people are seeking from yoga. 
Modern life is essentially imbalanced. Some people will focus so much on the goods of the body, whether how they look or their pleasure, that they forget that the soul really matters. And our own moral stance with respect to God is what gives us our primary dignity with grace operating in the soul. But other people will say, oh, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And therefore, only the thing that matters is my intention. And as long as my intention is good, I can do whatever I like with my body. And and Catholics have the balanced understanding, which is your body and soul are united organically in your single person. And just as Jesus Christ, he's God incarnate. So our our way of understanding our own dignity is to see the dignity of Christ and then to try to imitate him both in our body, our physical actions, as well as in our souls by worshiping God alone. So ultimately, we have this this unification of body and soul, which is why in the sacred liturgy, we kneel down. This is why we use holy water. This is why we use incense and candles, because we are bodily beings, and what we do with our body can help our spirit. So the rosary is a great example of that. Insofar as we can pray, you know, we have the rosary in our hands, we're moving our fingers across the beads, but we're also saying the words, and we're trying to use our imagination in order to to recall the mysteries of the life of Christ. So it actually is an integrative prayer, you know, that integrates all of these senses that we have in the rosary, while also leading us beyond the senses to the realm of faith. Father, I want you to comment on indifferentism in yoga. I mean, today we're looking at the gospel today and uh, about the light of Christ not being held under a bushel basket or held under a bed, but put on a candlestick for the whole world to see. And the early church fathers uh, make it clear that we're to live a godly life and let that light shine in the world around us. And yet, having said that, Haydock in his commentary today warned us about being indifferent to the gospel that's been proclaimed, this gift that we've been given. And I think many, many Catholics are kind of in this same boat. They're like, oh, come on, it's not that bad. You're, you're overdoing it, and they're just going to continue on doing what they're doing. Is this one of the spiritual dangers that Catholics will face if they practice yoga? Absolutely. Because yoga tends towards syncretism, what it does is it will try to erase or dissolve the distinctions between Christianity and non-Christian religions. And, uh, you know, as Catholics, we know that Christ is the only God incarnate. There aren't multiple avatars. There aren't multiple gods. There's one God and him alone do we serve. And to love him with all of our hearts is the first commandment. And so what happens is as people start to practice this vague spirituality, it starts to lead to indifferentism, not only with respect to the person of Christ, but also with respect to all of the things that make Catholicism distinct. Suddenly the liturgy seems less important. Suddenly our moral claims seem less important. And then everything sinks down to this more general level where all things become, as it were, united in a vague kind of gray mass. Whereas when we go to you know church, we see the distinctions among things but that are united harmoniously. All right. Well, we are out of time. 
Father Ezra Sullivan, OP, thank you for your time today. Very insightful conversation. We have linked up to this series of articles on this topic. Some really good insights. Share this with friends and family who are in this category. It might make a big impact on their lives. Spiritualdirection.com. Look for its articles there. Father Ezra, God love you. God bless you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Joining us right now via phone is Dom Alcuin Reed. He is the founding prior of the monastery at uh, Saint Benoit, France. He's also a liturgical scholar and the author of The Organic Development of the Liturgy, published in 2005 by Ignatius Press. Good morning to you, Dom Alcuin Reed. Hello. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for your time today. We're very grateful to you. Praise be to God. You know, just this morning in the gospel today, there is a, a little slight, very quick verse 35 of uh, Luke 24, uh, reference to the breaking of the bread. And uh, and I was discussing that from the commentaries this morning about how, you know, we see the earliest development of the, of the liturgy there in that one little phrase. And I thought it would be a fascinating conversation to talk about that and maybe start with that. Can you... Uh, could you help us better understand the, the the earliest version of the Mass for those apostles and disciples in the upper room? Sure. I mean, if we're talking about the development of the liturgy, we need to realize that our Lord himself lived in a cultic tradition, a tradition of, of, of worship. And what he did at the Last Supper, what he did after his resurrection, was in that context you know, he didn't make it up. He certainly he certainly added specific elements of, of the new covenant <laughs> of, of his own sacrifice on the cross and so on. But he was doing something in a tradition, and that tradition was obviously significantly developed by him uh, you know, at the Last Supper, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, and then the earliest Christians. Uh, in in the phrase you're talking about from the gospel, uh, you know, recognized him in the breaking of the bread. They recognized him in the celebration of, of the Blessed Eucharist. They came to see who he was. They came to understand uh, in his salvific, his unique salvific purpose in the world. Uh, and so we have here, you know, the 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 tradition. Uh, the Jewish tradition significantly, substantially uh, developed, definitively developed by our Lord, and then handed on. Uh, and and as you say in, in, in this gospel verse, we have, or in this gospel passage, we have we have a, a record of it in, from the earliest uh, the earliest times. I think it's interesting because as a Protestant, when I was Protestant. I would have read those verses and not thought twice about it. I would not have even, the, the word liturgy would not have even entered my mind. And uh, so often as a Protestant, and many Protestants are in this camp, not all, but uh, many, um, they, they, they seem to divorce our Lord from the concept of liturgies and rituals. They seem to think that he came to do something completely different, to do away with all of that. But as you just said, it seemed to indicate that is not at all the case, that it's not at all his his uh, experience as a first-century Jew. No, and 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 we have to realize, of course, as 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 we all as we all do eventually, that that the sacred scriptures are products of uh, divinely inspired and privileged products of the tradition of the early church. They didn't come first. You know, the, the what our Lord did came first, and and under the inspiration of God, the Holy Ghost, you know, these things were recorded by the apostles for the church of all times. Uh, and therefore, when we read the scripture, we need to read it within the tradition. And the tradition is intrinsically cultic. It's intrinsically liturgical. 
uh, literally isn't mm. something added on to Christianity. You know, the the sacrifice of the Christ on the cross made present through the through the continued celebration of the Eucharist, through the celebration continued celebration of the Mass, is something is something essentially liturgical, uh, and the Scriptures give witness to this. Uh, um, but we you know we need we need not mm. to take the fish out of the water. The sacred Scripture <laughs> it lives and breathes Amen. in the tradition of the Church, yeah. uh, and not the other way around. You know, it doesn't create <laughs> the Church, and it doesn't create. You know, it doesn't create doctrine. Um, doctrine doesn't come first. You know, our Lord didn't hand out a you know a, a sheet of, of bullet points for people to say, right, this is what we believe. Now go and create a Eucharist, or go and create the Mass. Uh, it's, it's exactly the other way around. And sometimes we're too rational to to realize that, but when we do realize it, it it's a, it's a great almost relief because it it puts things in the right context and we can begin to live and breathe those those very things uh in, particularly the mass and the sacraments and, and 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 prayer you know there's a lot of people who will listen to that and come to the conclusion and say well if that's the case if our lord set up uh, the liturgy in such a way that was like this, shouldn't we just go back to the way the Jews did uh, do Passover and try to recreate this proto-liturgy instead of trying to do uh, these man-made traditions? Uh, how would you parse sure, that well, out? We've seen, we've seen plenty of, you know, of, of elementary or primary school uh, teachers, you know, do reconstructions of, of Jewish Passover meals and so on, which, which, with all due respect to the good intentions of such people, is quite an insult to to people of the Jewish faith. You know, we, we shouldn't be imitating other people's rituals. Uh, um, the other thing is that you know our Lord lived in a context, but tradition is living uh, and it grows and it develops. Uh, and the Church, under the inspiration of God the Holy Ghost, over you know two millennia has enriched this most precious gift of the Eucharist with rites and prayers from from her development, her increased understanding of the preciousness of this gift, of the you know, of the of the vitalness of this gift, of the centrality of this gift, so that uh, so that whilst we do what our Lord did at the Last Supper, you know, we take, break, bless and give, all of those things are there. Uh, we have found it appropriate to do much more as well to point to those central things uh and you know we give our we give our best to god in worship i think one of the things we need to remember when we when we talk about liturgy or worship the mass the eucharist whichever names we wish to use is we need to remember that the worship is not about us it's about giving our best to god uh we're doing this for him not for us and of course, in do Dom Alcuin Reed is our guest, and uh, I think it's uh, his line may have cut out there. We may have to call him back. I was, but right before we went to the break, I was mentioning how my mind was utterly blown by Saint Justin the Martyr's description of the Holy Mass in about the year 150 A.D. in his letter, his first apology to uh, to the Roman Curia. I mean, the detail is just so amazing, and I really felt uh, for the first time truly connected. Uh, from a liturgical standpoint, going back all those years. But, uh, you know, I go to a traditional form of the Mass, the TLM, the 62 for the FSSP. And I'm newer to this uh, in a traditional form of the Mass the last a few years. And I've often heard the term Mass of the Ages being put out there. Um, can we talk about that? Can you give us a sense of, 
of the mass of the ages? How far back does it go? When, when do we start to see what we would think of today as the traditional form of the mass? Okay. Um, well, in in the Roman Rite, in the in the Western in Western Christendom, you know, the the central point part of the mass, the Roman Canon. I mean, we have texts at least in the sixth century, probably in the fourth or fifth century, which are pretty much what we use today. Uh, you know, that makes it, as far as we know, we don't have any textual evidence uh, before the fourth century. It may well, have, it may well have been prayed thus, uh, you know, earlier still. Uh, that's a limitation of scholarship. We don't, we don't have the evidence going all the way back. But uh, you know, when we when we pray the Roman Canon, we are praying with Christians of you know, more than sixteen hundred years, most probably in the West. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, what Justin Martyr describes in the Apology is what I was saying before. You know, we've augmented that uh, with the best we can because it's about God and it's about us. Um, one of the things I think explains some of the difficulties we've had in recent decades is that. It has been trying to bring people to participate in this wondrous reality, which is the sacred This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Christmas Minute. Have you ever heard people object to gold and gilded ornaments in a Catholic church? Have you ever heard them question the purpose of burning incense? How do we answer them? Simple. We answer them by pointing out the three gifts of the wise men at Christmas. If gold and incense can be brought to a stable, they can certainly be brought to a church. What do these three gifts mean? G.K. Chesterton says they represent three prophecies about the Christ child. Gold, that he should be crowned like a king. Frankincense, that he should be worshipped like a god. And myrrh, that he should be buried like a man. The first two are marvelous and obvious. The third is a wonder. Want more than a minute? Visit our website at chesterton.org. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Christmas Minute. Are you worried about the war on Christmas? Don't be. G.K. Chesterton says Christmas is the irresistible festival for those who are afraid to be festive. It is the spectacular festival when almost everyone lives and acts poetry instead of just a few people writing it. It is the ancient festival, a trinity of eating, drinking, praying, that to modern seems irreverent because the holy day really is a holiday. No matter what happens, says Chesterton, the great majority will go on observing Christmas Day with Christmas gifts and Christmas benedictions and they will continue to do it, and suddenly, someday, they'll wake up and discover why. Want more than a minute? Visit us at chesterton.org. We have the 6th century, probably in the 4th or 5th century, which are pretty much what we use today. Uh, you know, that makes as far as we know, we don't have any textual evidence uh, before the 4th century. It may well have, it may well have been prayed thus uh, you know, earlier still. Uh, that's a limitation of scholarship. We don't, we don't have the evidence going all the way back. 
But uh, you know, when we when we pray the Roman Canon, we are praying with Christians of you know, more than sixteen hundred years, most probably in the West. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, what Justin Martyr describes in the Apology is what is what we do today. But as I was saying before, you know, we've augmented that uh, with the best we can because it's about God, not about us. Um, one of the things I think that explains some of the difficulties we've had in recent decades is that is that in trying to bring people to participate in this wondrous reality, which is the sacred liturgy and the central, central active of the sacred mass, the holy mass, is we've tried to make it a little more accessible. Uh, you know, the, the, the people in the 1960s responsible for the reform and so on were most probably well-intentioned, I think, uh, with maybe one or two exceptions with some agendas, but, but you know, if we assume good intentions, they seem to have missed the point that people need psychologically uh, to do the best they can for God, and that in doing that, uh, that takes them closer to God. That and that that is real participation. You know, that touching God or being touched by God in the liturgy uh, is real participation. Not necessarily, you know, saying certain prayers aloud in the vernacular or or singing popular hymns or something like that. You know, the encounter with the divine is a participation and the ultimate participation of course in the mass is the, is the worthy reception of the blessed eucharist but, but you know there are many other ways as well and this explains i think what benedict described as the attraction of the more traditional liturgical forms for younger people in in the use of antiquity in the in the older form of the mass uh, young traditional communities are uh, traditional communities are young uh, certainly they have older people with them too which is marvelous but uh, as you would know from where you go to mass, the, you know, the, the congregation is, is 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 not is not the average age is is not very high. Uh, and why do young people in this postmodern world, with all the all that the world, the flesh, and the devil has to offer, why do young people go to this? Because they encounter God there, but also uh, they do so in a way which, ironically, not ironically, happily. That follows really what the Second Vatican Council wants people to do with the liturgy. They participate consciously and actively. They mm-hmm. follow the prayers and rites of the Missal. They sing, they pray, you know, they, they're engaged in the liturgical seasons and the feasts. They, there's a real formation in the Catholic faith, which often is not found in, 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 in parochial schools or, or, in, or in, in some parish liturgical celebrations. Um, young people going to the to the to the Usus Antiquity or the traditional rites aren't bored in church. Uh, they're praying. They're encountering God. You know, they're lining up in the confessional pew before mass. Uh, they're living their faith, and they're being fired into apostles. Now, this can certainly happen. In, in you know, there are many good priests in, in in parishes celebrating the more modern rites who are, who are doing the best they can, and they're doing wonderful work with with, uh, with you know with what they have. Uh, let's, let's not uh, let's not doubt either the validity of the new rites or the, the goodwill and hard pastoral work of many many priests and faithful uh, and, and and other ministers and, and, and to be sure parents of families and so on. Uh, you know where where the traditional rites aren't available, but I think we do have to face the fact that the traditional rites are are part of the solution and perhaps a very big part of the solution uh, to to the malaise in which we find ourselves in these days. Yes, that's a fascinating point. And actually, you know, as a young person, relatively young, that that was what inspired me to go into, you know, a traditional parish that provided the uh, the sacraments of 1962 and before 1955 as well. 
Uh, but to go back to a point you made uh, earlier, you know, there's always been an organic development, as you said, of the liturgy. But it seems as if the, you know, the Mass of Paul VI was an abrupt change. Has there ever been a change in the history of the liturgy that seems as abrupt as, as this one? Not really. I mean, some modern liturgical scholars like to say that Vatican II did what Trent did. That's basically an historical lie. <laughs> um, you know, the, the imposition of a radically new rite of mass uh, juridically in the space of you know about 12 months uh, has never happened in the history of, uh, of the Church as it wow. did in 1969, 1971. Um, modern communication facilitates this. You know, modern modern printing means to facilitate this a heightened sense of obedience to, in, in, in Catholic life to every last dictate of the Pope. I'm not talking about matters of faith and morals, obviously, though mm. the definitions made by the Holy Father in those matters, you know, the obedience of faith. But, but you know, we don't have to agree with Pope Paul VI's judgment that the vernacular in the liturgy was necessary. We don't have to agree with that. To be Catholics, we can disagree with that. And you know, it's not a doctrine of a faith, it's a policy. But unfortunately, you know, too many policies were presented and good, faithful Catholics obeyed uh, because that's their instinct. And it's, a, it's a virtue. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but you know, we've learned in the decades since that, that, that critical obedience is necessary in times when, when authority uh, commands things which are perhaps not as, not as they should be. Um, so, yeah, uh, no, I mean, we've never seen this before, as, as Cardinal Ratzinger said a number mm. of times. Uh, in, in his various writings, and of course that explains why, as Pope Benedict, he, he freed, uh, or he didn't really free, he, he pointed out that the traditional liturgy is free from from any restriction, um, and and said, you know, the people are free to use this, and what was great and good for past centuries cannot be all of a sudden uh, declared harmful or entirely forbidden. Uh, Dom Reed, I, I was thinking about this as you were speaking, and I've heard that claim many times. Uh, I first started attending the traditional mass a couple of years ago. I'm currently 24, and I started attending when I was in college. And one thing that I kept hearing was, you know, the liturgy was created at Trent. It's oh, that's why they call it the Tridentine Mass because it's only 500 years old. And your book, I purchased it while I was in college and started reading it and understanding what exactly is organic development versus an accretion. Uh, I'm thinking of Pius X talking about uh, false antiquarianism. So, what do we mean by false? What is antiquarianism, and why is that? And what is a false antiquarianism? Well, well, antiquarianism is, is, is saying because it's old, we must imitate it. Uh, now, you mentioned Justin Martyr. Uh, uh, okay, Justin Martyr was describing a point in the development of the liturgy. Uh, and the description is powerful, and it shows that there is a developed ritual and a sense of ritual in, you know, in the second century. That's amazing. Uh, but we're not in the second century. God the Holy Ghost has given us many gifts, <laughs> some of the beautiful hymns, the, the liturgical hymns and poetry and prayers of Thomas Aquinas, for example. Do we, because we found the text of Justin Martyr, throw everything away and rush back to that? No, we move forward with all that is good and all that God has given us with all that is good, uh, because they're, they're gifts of, of the tradition, they're gifts of the Holy Ghost to his church, for the glory of God, for the edification of people, for the salvation of souls. Uh, you know, there's no need to throw it all out. Now, in the history of 
literally the Roman canon prayed for the Roman emperor. We don't do that anymore because it isn't a Roman emperor. You know, some things do fall away. Uh, in the oldest, the pre-Pius XII form of the, the exalted at the Paschal Vigil, you know, there's the prayer for the Roman emperor with the, the amusing rubric saying, if there is no Roman emperor, you leave this out. <laughs> um, you know, some things do fall away, uh, very much like fall off a tree. Mm. Uh, but new growth comes. Uh, but this is the, this is the concept of organic. But you know, if anyone who has a garden knows, yes, you prune, and yes, new growth comes, and sometimes you know, things fall off. There are accidents of history and so on. Maybe they're unfortunate ones, but the organism itself is there. You don't, you don't, uh, when you prune a tree, you don't take an axe to its base Amen and then that. start sticking it back together again. You know, you hammer and nails, and so you have a dead tree if that's the case. Now, I don't want to be, be heard as saying that the, the new liturgy is a dead tree, you know, by, by the power of the keys and so on. Uh, it's a valid right and confers grace. But it certainly is not a terribly healthy tree in some places. Mm. And, and historically speaking, I think we can say, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a created right with various bits and pieces from here and there. Uh, it's a valid right. The Holy Father approved it at the time. And as I said before, you know, many people worship According to many people, don't have any other choice than to worship according to it, and pray sincerely and receive the sacraments validly. Let me uh, faithful priests do their best with it. Let me sneak a question in because we're about to run out of time. About forty-five or thirty seconds sure. here. Uh, Deacon Alclair sure. asked whether or not in the catacombs in the early centuries was it uh, versus populum or was it ad orientum. I don't think there was a concept of versus populum at the time, especially especially in, in, in the limited spaces. I think if we go to the catacombs, we see that people are offering, offering the Eucharist you know, on the ledges in front mm-hmm. of the martyr's tombs. So, ad orientum, praise be to God. Well, we are out of time, Dom Alcuin Reed. God bless you. God love you. Thank you for your time today. We're very grateful to you. God bless. Thank you. Have a great day. Praise be to God. And that is going to do it for hour number one of Catholic Drive Time. Thank you all for joining us. We're very grateful to have you on our show. Yes, we are so grateful to have you on every morning, and except for today, because we're not in. Today, we are having a pre-recorded show, and that is just about over now, because tomorrow, we're back in the studio. We are live. Everyone will be here in the studio, willing and able and happy to wish you a very Merry Christmas, because that's right, Christmas just began. Christmas did not end at midnight on Christmas Day. No, 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 no. In fact, it was just the beginning. So keep your lights up. Keep your decorations out. Keep the cookies in the oven because we are ready to celebrate. As Catholics, we're just getting started. So there's at least 11 more days where you can tell everybody, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and everybody will look at you funny. It'll be great. And some might even celebrate all the way to Candlemas. But maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow. Anyway, God love you. God bless you. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Let's pray for one another. We'll certainly be praying for you on this Christmas day. All right. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us on Your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go.
go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Salt.net. The intention for today's Mass is for all of our online viewers of those joining us through Guadalupe Radio. Today we celebrate the Feast of St. Stephen within the octave of Christmas. Please stand and join us in singing, O Come, All Ye Faithful. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come, ye, O come, ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the King of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, Ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Gloria in excelsis Deo, et in terra pax omnibus, bone voluntatis, laudamus te, benedicimus te, Adoramus te, glorificamus te, gratias agimus tibi, propter maniam gloriam tuam, Domine Deus rex celestis, Deus pater omnipotens, Domine Fili Unigenite, Jesu Christe, 
Domine Deus Agnus Dei, Filius Patris, qui tollis peccata mundi, miserere nobis, qui tollis peccata mundi, suscipete precationem nostram, qui sedes ad exteram patris, miserere nobis, quoniam tu solus sanctus, tu solus dominus, tu solus altissimus, Iesu Christe, cum sancto spiritu, in gloria Dei Patris. Amen. Let us pray. Grant, Lord, we pray, that we may imitate what we worship, and so learn to love even our enemies. For we celebrate the heavenly birthday of a man who knew how to pray even for those who persecuted him. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Stephen, filled with grace and power, was working great wonders and signs among the people. Certain members of the so-called synagogue of freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and people from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and debated with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. When they heard this, they were infuriated, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up intently to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out in a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed upon him together. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The word of the Lord. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Be my rock of refuge, a stronghold to give me safety. You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead and guide me. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. You will redeem me, O Lord, O faithful God. I will rejoice and be glad because of your mercy. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Rescue me from the clutches of my enemies and my persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your kindness. Into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit.
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God and has given us light. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of men, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be led before governors and kings for my sake as a witness before them and the pagans. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. You will be given at that moment what you are to say, for it will not be you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will hand over brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but whoever endures to the end will be saved. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. It could seem a bit jarring at times when right after we celebrate the beautiful and somewhat sometimes sentimental feast of Christmas, the very next day we celebrate the proto-martyr, the first martyr, St. Stephen, one of the first deacons ordained for the church that, those, that he could serve at tables to serve the poor so that the apostles could focus more on the word of God. And we hear in that first reading how, of course, St. Stephen gave his life for Jesus. We're already thrown back into the beginnings of the, the church in apostolic times. We'll stay in apostolic times tomorrow when we celebrate the feast of St. John the, the Evangelist. But then we're, then we're thrown back to the infancy narrative and celebrating the Feast of the Holy Innocents, which seem to be going back and forth. Actually, when we look at the very first list of martyrs, what we call the martyrology, the saints that we celebrate, we find an interesting fact. The first one, which was like a scroll, is called the chronograph of, five, sorry, of 354. So already in the middle of the fourth century, we recognize that we celebrated Christmas, that the day after Christmas was the Feast of St. Stephen, then St. John the Evangelist, and then the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And the reason why is because the birth of Christ is our birth into eternal life. The birth of Christ, his dies natalis, we celebrate on the day that we die. That's why we celebrate for martyrs the, the day on which they gave their life for Christ, the day that they died. Christ came into this world so that we could be with him. Or as I think it was uh, Fulton Sheen who put it this way, he says, every man comes into this world in order to live, but Jesus Christ came into this world to die, to die for us, to open the gates of heaven. The other thing that's very important, we recognize why we celebrate these great saints at the very beginning of the year, of the church year, is that each of these has a way, they, they identify themselves with Jesus. When we look at the, the martyrdom of St. Stephen, 
he actually, in, he, on his heart are the very, and in his mouth are the very same words that Jesus had in his passion. Father, or Lord, forgive them for this sin. Into your hands I commend my spirit. St. Stephen identified himself with Jesus. In fact, he was accused of the, even the very same thing that Jesus was accused of, of speaking against the temple. And saying, he says this man, Jesus, will destroy this temple and, re and change all of the, the, the customs of Moses. Of course, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus was speaking about his body. But Stephen is accused of the very same thing Jesus is accused of. We think about the feast tomorrow, St. John the Evangelist, we're reminded of the words of Jesus from the cross, where he says to his mother, Mother, behold your son. Speaking of St. John, behold your son. In a way, the son, the new son, John, being identified with Jesus. And then on the December 28th, the Feast of the Holy Innocents, it really is a case of mistaken identity. Herod is, is trying to search out Jesus to destroy him, and so he goes, well, every child, just to make sure that I get, I get the right one, any child, well, he will take his life. It's a, a, stake, a case of mistaken identity. All those children were identified as being the Christ, or possibly, and so they gave their life. They could not raise their voices, but they gave their life, shed their blood to protect Jesus. This is the importance of this feast, that the grace of God that has been given to us, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and that grace allows us to be able to identify ourselves more with Jesus, to conform our life to his. This is the Christmas mystery, and this is why we celebrate the feast of St. Stephen, who identified himself so profoundly with Christ. May we do the same by God's grace in our life. Amen. On this day, when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior have appeared, let us, dear brothers and sisters, humbly pour forth to him our prayers, trusting not in our own good works, but in his mercy. For the Church of God, that in integrity of faith she may await and may welcome with joy him whom the Immaculate Virgin conceived by a word and wondrously brought to birth. Let us pray to the Lord. For the progress and peace of the whole world, that what is given in time may become a, a reward in eternity. Let us pray to the Lord. For those who are oppressed by hunger, sickness, or loneliness, that through the mystery of the nativity of Christ, they may find relief in both mind and body. Let us pray to the Lord. For the families of our congregation, that receiving Christ, they may learn also to welcome him in the poor. Let us pray to the Lord. that by the grace of God we may identify ourselves more with Jesus Christ. And we remember, too, those who are persecuted for their faith, that they may persevere. We pray to the Lord. We pray, O Lord, that, uh, Lord our God, that the Virgin Mary, who merited to bear God in, and man in her chaste womb, may commend the prayers of your faithful in your sight through Christ our Lord.
Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen, when the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. When a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. Hither, page, and stand by me, if thou knowest it telling. Yonder peasant, who is he, where and what he is dwelling? Sire, he lives a goodly hence, underneath the mountain, right against the forest fence, by St. Agnes' fountain. Bring me flesh and bring me wine, bring me pine logs hither. Thou and I shall see him dine when we bear them thither. Page and monarch, forth they went, forth they went together. Through the rude wind's wild lament and the bitter weather. Pray, dearly beloved, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. May these offerings of our devotion today be acceptable to you, we pray, O Lord, for they are prompted by the glorious commemoration of St. Stephen the Martyr, through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation. Always and everywhere to give you thanks. Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, for in the mystery of the Word made flesh, a new light of your glory has shone upon the eyes of our mind, so that as we recognize in him God made visible, we may be caught up through him in love of things invisible. And so with angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, and with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the hymn of your glory, as without end we acclaim. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Pleni Sunceli et Terra, Gloria Tua, Hosanna in excelsis, Benedictus, qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take this all of you and eat of it, for this is my body 
which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The mystery of faith, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. <clears throat> Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis, our Pope, and Michael, our Bishop, and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face. Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the blessed apostles and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life, and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. <coughs> through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, forever and ever. Amen. Preceptus salutaribus moniti, et divine institutione formati, audemus dicere, Pater noster, qui es in celis, sanctifice tuur nomen tuum, Adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in celo et in terra, panem nostrum quotidianum, da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, Et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed liberanos a malo. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil, graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, 
graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. And with your spirit. Let us offer to the sign of peace. Agnus Dei, qui tollis peccata mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, qui tollis peccata mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, qui tollis peccata mundi, Dona nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I'm not worthy. You should enter under my roof. But only say the word and my soul shall be. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. For all those unable to receive sacramental communion at this time, we offer this act of spiritual communion. My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the most blessed sacrament. I love you above all things, and I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you were already there, and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Of the Father's love begotten, Ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source and the ending He. Of the things that are that have been, And that future years shall see, Evermore and evermore. O oh, that birth forever blessed, when the virgin full of grace, by the Holy Ghost conceiving, bear the Savior of our race, and the babe the world's redeemer, first revealed his sacred face. 
us evermore and evermore. Let us pray. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that the Word made flesh, proclaimed by the blessed Apostle. For the many mercies which surround us, we give thanks to you, O Lord, who saved us through the nativity of your Son, and gladdened us with the celebration of the blessed martyr Stephen, through Christ our Lord. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go forth, the Mass is ended. Thanks be to God. Joy to the world. The Prayer to St. Michael St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Prayer of Deliverance Almighty God and Father, we beg thee through the intercession and help of the archangels St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Celebrating 2,000 years of truth, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Hi, this is Maureen Sanders from Holy Rosary Church in Rosenberg, Texas. You are listening to KSHJ 1430 AM, Catholic Radio for Houston. Houston. 